Matthew 28, last five verses. I'm so glad you are here, that we are here, that God is in our presence, that we get to worship Him together in all of these various ways, through communion, through singing, through giving, through praying, through this portion of our worship as we study, as we sit under the teaching of the Word of God. I'm thankful that I get to participate in that with you. Lots of stuff, big stuff, happened on mountains in the Bible. You can go all the way back to the book of Exodus, uh, Exodus 20. Remember, they came out of Egypt, they crossed the Red Sea, they went a little bit of a distance and they came to this mountain, this series of mountains, Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb. And there God came down and gave his law. You remember in the book of 1 Kings, Elijah confronted the prophets of Baal and they went to the top of Mount Carmel. And there God demonstrated his power. God, God likes mountains. You can go to different places in the Old Testament. You can go to Matthew 5, 6, and 7 in the New Testament. You remember uh, Jesus, the most famous sermon that he preached, the Sermon on the what? Sermon on the mountain. You go to Matthew 17, and there you've got Jesus going up on this mountain. We call it the Mount of Transfiguration, where Moses, Elijah, and Jesus were, were transfigured there in the presence of the disciples. And it's a big deal mountain. Maybe the most important mountain, though, is this one, Matthew 28. What, what we've got here, if I can set the stage for you chronologically, you may already know where we are in the life of Jesus and where we are in the scope of God's working, but I want to make sure you, you know where we are in Matthew 28. If, if I could back up just a, a few chapters, Jesus spent the last week in Jerusalem, got there on Sunday, put the palms down as he entered the city. He cleansed the temple that week, threw out the money changers, he, he taught the people over and over again throughout that week, but things were getting worse as far as opposition to Jesus. So on Thursday, Passover, when they ate the Passover meal, Jesus left that upper room. He went to the Garden of Gethsemane, and there he was arrested. Thursday night. Throughout that night to early Friday morning, Jesus was in the captivity of the religious leaders and then the political leaders and he was scourged sometime Friday morning. The crucifixion began at about 9 o'clock. He hung for six hours till Friday afternoon at about 3 o'clock. You think about, you think about what, it, what had happened, what happened on that Friday when, when they, they beat him, when they spat on him, they punched him, they, they treated him like a dog. When they took him to the cross, they put... We, we, we assume they put three nails in his body, one through both feet, 
one in each hand or the upper part of what we'd call the wrist, most likely. And he hung there for six hours. They put him in the grave that afternoon. He was there Friday night, all day Saturday, Saturday night, early Sunday morning. God raised him from the dead. And about daylight, when they got to the tomb, he was not there anymore. He had been resurrected. And, and after the resurrection of Jesus, he was still in human form. It was still his body. And so he could appear to the disciples. And Thomas had said, I'm not going to believe unless I see the imprint of the nails in his hands or I see that gash in his side. I'm not going to believe. So Jesus could present himself to the disciples and he could say, Thomas, look at my hands. Look at my side. And yet he's alive. He's in their presence. And he's, he's interacting with the disciples after the resurrection until the time of the ascension we read about in, 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 in Acts chapter 1. But that, that period of time is about 40 days. So from Sunday to the ascension, you've got about 40 days. Sunday, the resurrection to the time that he ascended, you've got about 40 days. But near the end of that time, he had already talked to the disciples about this particular mountain, this, this area in Galilee. This is where it all began. This is, this is the northern part. If you're thinking about this geographically, this is in the northern part of what we call the Bible land. You've got, you've got Judea in the south. You got Samaria, you got Galilee. You got Galilee. That's where Jesus was from. That's where Nazareth was, okay? He was born in Bethlehem down close to Jerusalem, but he, he was raised in, in Galilee and in Capernaum on the side of the of the of the sea of Galilee. You know, this this is where he's from. So he started there. This is where he did most of his ministry. Went down to Jerusalem and he died, but he was resurrected, of course, in Jerusalem, outside of Jerusalem. But then he had told his disciples about this area, this Mound, these mountains in Galilee, up in the north part. So this is, I want to point out a couple more things to you as we go through this lesson today, but this is Matthew's way of, of telling us in his framing the story. It started in Galilee, and Jesus is going to give this, this very, very pivotal, earth-shattering commission in Galilee. So we come full circle, it's a point. So he's there. On this mountain. And he takes one of those nail-scarred hands. And he, he's in the presence of 11 disciples, these, these guys who had spent three and a half years with him. They're, they're nervous. They, they don't know for sure everything that's going on. They haven't received the indwelling of the Holy Spirit yet. So, so they're confused. They, they believe in him, but they've got some, some doubts as we read in the text, as RJ read the text a few minutes ago, they, they, they're a little bit hesitant, you know, there's, there's a little bit of something going on in their hearts, but, but they're worshiping him. But he takes one of those nail-scarred hands and he points to the world and he says, Peter, Andrew, James, John, all 11 of you, I want you now to take what I've been teaching you for the last three and a half years and what you've seen the last couple of months. I want you to take the message of the death, burial, and resurrection of the Christ, the Son of the living God. I want you to take that message and I want you to share it with the entire world. And then the book ends. I mean, that's it. There's some great significance in the way that Matthew has the story ending here, and I want to 
point that out to you as we go through this, but I hope you're with me in Matthew 28. That's where, that's where we are. Matthew doesn't even tell us that Jesus ascends. He just stops, you know? He just stops. That's where the story ends as far as Matthew's gospel is concerned. You've got all this, the death, burial, and resurrection. You've got some interactions that Jesus had after the resurrection. But then you come to this mountain and Jesus points to the world and he says, okay, go teach. Go share the message with everybody. And then that's it. No final word, no conclusion, nothing. Just stops. This commission has changed your life and mine. Because... These 11 men, they took it seriously. They didn't take it as optional. Well, you know, Jesus wasn't, wasn't very clear on whether I, all of us had to do it. You know, I'm, I'm not as good as Peter, or I'm not as good of a speaker as James, or I'm not as comfortable around others as Andrew. Andrew was always bringing somebody to Jesus. You may remember that. You and I have been blessed because Peter, Andrew, James, and John, all 11 of them took this command seriously. They, they heard what Jesus said and they, they did it. They, they obeyed it. And the people that they taught obeyed it. And the people that they taught obeyed it. And the people that they taught obeyed it. And you follow that, that chain, those links down to our day and time, and somebody, for some of us it was our parents and a believing community in which we were raised, they taught us. For others of you, it was maybe somebody in this building who's not a blood relative who shared the gospel with you. For, for, for some of you, maybe many of you, it was somebody at work or it was maybe, maybe the person you married, or, but it was somebody who said, she needs to hear the gospel. He needs to learn about what Jesus has done for him. You see, in our, in our text, this is, this is not hard to understand. It's really, it's really not. I, this, this commission, as we come to the end of this little series we've been doing for the last few weeks, this, this microcosm of the gospel that starts with the compassion of Jesus that leads to our confession. We try to obey the commandment to love God and neighbor, but, but it's incomplete. We haven't talked about what we ought to talk about if we don't get here, if we don't come to this great commission because Jesus comes to this point and it's almost like if we read this story properly, I think it's, it's, it's been building to this. It's been building to Matthew 28, 16 through 20. Every, it doesn't end with a resurrection, it ends here. And if you look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all of them have some version of the commission in some way. They, they've all got this. They don't end with a resurrection, they end with this. Go and teach. Go and teach. Now let's look at the text, all right? Let's look at the text. Last five verses. The eleven disciples went to Galilee, again, that's in the northern part, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Presumably, well, this honestly, this is a, I'm not sure what the doubt here is. 
Matthew puts this in there and just kind of leaves us hanging there a bit. Some people have speculated that there were others there besides the apostles. The, the apostles worshiped, but some of the other people in the crowd doubted. More likely, this is something like what Thomas was struggling with or had struggled with, that, that in the apostles there's this spirit of worship. They believe in who he is, but at the same time they're uncertain about what happens next. They're... they're in fact, some translations put this, they hesitated or they were hesitant or something like that. It's this idea of, yes, they trust in him, they believe that he, that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God, but they don't know what's, what's going to happen now. Where, where do we go from here? So some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. First of all, I want you to notice this aspect of authority. When it comes to the Great Commission, there are these three things we're going to talk about. If you're following along in the back of the bulletin, and I hope you will, um, the, the, this first aspect, I think as you, as you go through the text, you've got to recognize this. All authority, we've got to submit to the authority of Christ. All authority has been given me in heaven and on earth. And so you look at this on the context of Jesus' ministry, and there's very much an emphasis that this is what we need to get from who Jesus is. There still may have been some doubt about what, what does it mean. He's been resurrected, and, and maybe the doubt part of, of verse 17 is they still don't fully understand who this is, who's before them. They understand he's the Christ, the Son, the living God, but what are the implications of that? And Jesus wants to clarify this very, very well for them. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He wants to make it perfectly clear that the one standing before them is not in any respect less than Yahweh, the God, the Father. He is in no respect less than Yahweh, the one whom they had been confessing since they were little boys. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Notice the, the superlatives here. All authority in verse 18, verse 19, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. Verse 20, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, behold, I am with you literally all the days, even to the end of the age. There's this emphasis that Jesus is standing before them as someone who's got the right to tell them what they need to do in every way. Submit to the authority of Christ. You know... I suppose, of all the things Jesus has told us to do, this is one of the things that you and I neglect, maybe more so than the rest. I don't know that that's true, but I think it's pretty close. There's this hesitancy on our part for various reasons. Fear, timidity, cowardice, Uncertainty, complacency, procrastination, lots of different factors here, I'm sure. But I think ultimately, I'm gonna, I'll, I'll come back to that. I'll circle around to that a couple of times as we go through this because I don't know where you are on this, but we're probably, many of us are probably in similar positions when it comes to this. None of us, none of us probably willing to stand up and say, you know what, I, I'm struggling in some areas, but this one I've got down pat. Very few of us are, are there. But I think it's important to recognize 
the very first part of this, Jesus doesn't leave us wiggle room here. He, he, it's not like he, he says this is sort of one of those gray areas, you know, you might try this sometime. All authority, this, I, I'm trying to get you to see here how emphatic this statement is. I've kind of read through that in the past. You know, that's just kind of something getting up to the commission. This is not just a, some throwaway words to get us to the go part. He starts with this for a reason. He's looking at these men and he's saying, I am God and I have all authority and I'm about to tell you to do something and I want you to take that very seriously. And so when you read this part, understand that when we obey the Great Commission or when we disobey the Great Commission, it has something to do with what we believe about the authority of Jesus either to, to tell us to do something or tell us not to do something. And so if I'm not doing this, if you're not doing this, it has something to do with my attitude, your attitude, about what I believe, about what we believe, about His nature, who He is. Does He have the right to tell us to do something? Even when we don't want to do it, even when we're scared to do it, all authority has been given to Him. Go therefore, He says. So if we're going to obey the Great Commission, it starts by our understanding our need to submit to His authority. But also we follow His plan. We follow His plan. So He doesn't stop there. He says, okay, here's, here's a commission. He says, I've got the authority. And then He says this. And this is the part we focus on a lot, and there's a lot there. But verse 19, verses 19 and 20, here's His plan. Jesus' plan for the evangelization of the planet. This is Jesus' plan for making sure there are not people out there who don't know the name of Jesus. And by the way, there are about a billion who don't yet even know his name. This is his plan to keep that from happening. This is his plan that nobody within the sphere of my influence or your influence goes his or her lifetime without at least hearing you or me say. Let me tell you something about the Lord I serve. This is his plan. His marketing plan is pretty simple. His church growth plan is pretty basic. His plan is for every member of every church to share His message with everybody we can. That's His plan. It's really no more complex than that. Churches sometimes make it more complex than that. And I think usually we do that in order to try to help. And we come up with marketing plans. Nothing wrong with marketing plans. We come up with church growth plans. I think we ought to have church growth plans. And we come up with networking strategies. Nothing wrong with networking strategies. But, but it all boils down to this. We've got to convince every member of our churches to obey what he said here. Just to do it, you know. It's a really simple plan. Um, I, I want to focus on the words of it. Make sure we understand what he's saying. So, so look at it. Just look at it in your Bible. I, you're... There are too many different translations of this. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. So let me tell you how this works out grammatically so that you can read it uh, more clearly. 
Go therefore and make disciples. All right, when, when you're reading that in English, it certainly sounds like you've got a couple of imperatives there. Imperatives, do something. All right, do so. So go and make disciples. That's actually not what it is in the original text. You have one main verb here. All right, one main verb. You have one imperative. All right, just stick with me for a minute or so on this because I want you to understand what he's saying here. You got one main verb, one do this, and that is the make disciples part. Okay, so if you're taking notes or whatever, this would be something good to remember. Here's what he says make disciples. That's the leading verb. That's the verb that controls the entire sentence, all right? This is what I want you to do. I want you to make disciples, all right? You got three participles. So these are all related to the main verb. You've got three of them, okay? They are subordinate to the make disciples part. They in some way, and, and, and those who understand the Greek language argue about exactly how they relate, but, but they don't argue about this. They all relate in some way to your doing the imperative part, okay? So you got that main thing there, and then you got these other three participles that relate to that in some way. This is, this is how you're going to do it. I think that's basically the gist of it. And the three participles are go, baptize, and teach. So when I think of a participle, I normally think of an ing, but it's not always that way, and certainly not always translated that way. But but go, all right. There sounds like an imperative, but it's it's subordinate to the make disciples part. Here's what I want you to, here's what I want you guys to do. This is what he's saying. Hey guys, make disciples, make disciples, make disciples. This is your commission. Make disciples. Now the other three relate to that. How are you going to do that? Well, you. I mean, this would, this would be implied, really, in making disciples. You've got to go. You've got to go. Some, sometimes people want to subordinate, so, subordinate that so much to the main verb that they translate it as you go. You may have heard it said that way. As you go. And there's nothing inherently wrong with that. It, it probably carries that meaning. He's not saying that you have to cross cultural boundaries in order to make disciples, that, that you always have to do that. But neither is he saying that you have fulfilled the Great Commission if you only share the message as you go. So I think both of these ideas are implied. As you go, you need to make disciples. And you need to purposefully, intentionally go in order to make disciples. So that go is subordinate to, hey, make disciples, and you go wherever you've got to go. You go to work, you go to school, you go to the ballpark, you go to your neighbor's front step, you go across the street, you go to the grocery store, you go to Tanzania, Guyana, Peru, Colombia, India, you go on and on, right? Cross-culture, cross-cultural missions, yeah, that's implied here. Every church needs to be involved. I'm not suggesting that every member of every church has to go to a, uh, another country in order to fulfill this. Only that we need to recognize this is a strong statement. Make disciples. How do you do that? Well, you've got to go. You don't just sit there in your church building and wait for them to come. Because they're not coming. They're not coming. Not, not a lot. Not anymore. So Go. And then the, the, the second one, 
The second participle is, um, is baptizing them. This is, this is a part of the discipling process, the making disciple process. So, so I'm going to make disciples. How do I do that? Well, I've got to go and I've got to baptize. That's, that's part of this make disciples, making disciples process. Well, baptism, we, you know, we studied this before in other, other places. This, this is the baptism in which one identifies with Jesus. This is the death, burial, and resurrection that we emulate. We die to self. We're buried in water. We're raised up. We're, we're baptizing. And so bapt, baptizing is part of fulfilling the Great Commission. It is making disciples. You're going to go. Part of this is you're going to be baptizing people. You're going to be baptizing people. But that's not all. That's not all. Teaching. Baptizing and teaching. This, um, of course, there's, I don't think this is, I don't think this is really referring to the teaching that leads to the baptizing here. I think the teaching is implied in the baptism, the baptizing. You don't baptize someone whom you haven't taught. So there's, there's teaching that's implied in that word baptize. You baptize, you, you teach someone, it leads to baptism. But this is something that's different. This is, this is something beyond that, especially when you read Read the way he words it here. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them what? To observe all that I have commanded you. So, so part of the making disciples process is we go, we're, we're, we're teaching that leads to baptism, and we're teaching follow-up. We sometimes drop the ball here, don't we? And we experience this in every culture. We experience it here. We experience it on our short-term mission trips, perhaps, right? We, we baptize folks, and then sometimes there's not the adequate follow-up that goes on. And what happens is people don't get this part, and then they aren't faithful six months down the road, right? We've got to do this anytime we baptize. There's got to be the follow-up. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Go, we make disciples, go, baptize, teach. There's this other phrase I want you to notice here, and that is the all the nations. This is, we could spend a lot of time talking about all the nations. That's a theme, by the way. That's a theme throughout the Bible, starting in Genesis 12. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm not going to say much about this, but I do want you to understand, at least make yourself a mental note. That's a big deal, that phrase. That's a really big deal. Uh, this, this goes... This goes all the way back to when God called Abraham. This is a commission. This is a great commission. God called Abraham and he said, Abraham, I want you to go. I want you to go. In fact, there, there are a lot of parallels between the great commission in Matthew 8, 28 and the great commission that God gave to Abraham and God gave to Moses and God gave to Joshua. A lot of these commissions throughout the Bible. But God said, Abraham, I want you to go. I want you to go. And I want you to be a blessing to all the nations. This is what God's always been concerned about. It's all the nations. God has never been concerned about one nation more than others. God chose the Israelite nation to be a blessing to all the nations. But in so many respects, they fell short of that throughout their history. Just read the Old Testament. But we come to Jesus and He is the, he's the Son of God who's going to truly be a blessing to all the nations. And so He comes to the end of His time on earth and He gives this commission and He says, here is the scope of it. You make disciples by going, by baptizing, by teaching, and you do it within this sphere, this sphere. Everywhere. You are not limited by any ethnicity, 
any nationality. You don't have any cultural boundaries. You do it in all the nations. And most, most uh, people interpret this word here to mean like something synonymous with people groups. People groups. Not necessarily bound by national boundaries, but rather people groups. And so you go to all people groups and you share the message with them. Now let me, I said I'd come back to this. Um, let me just briefly show you something here that is pretty, pretty cool. In Matthew's gospel account, you've got five blocks of teaching, okay? Five major blocks of teaching. And, and each one of them is going to say something like this. It's going to say, um, like, let, well, let, me, let me just tell you one. Matthew 5, verse 1. This is the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. It says, um, Jesus was on the mountain. He sat down and all the disciples were, they came to him and he began to teach them saying, something like that. So you got that in the first part of Matthew 5. Well, the way Matthew, Matthew's gospel is arranged, you've got five of those like that. They're not all quite as cohesive as the Sermon on the Mount, but, but you've got five of those. So Jesus gathers the disciples to them. He teaches them. And then at the end of it, you have something like this. And this is at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. When he had finished saying these things, he moves on. Five times, okay? This is important. So he'll, he'll say something like he gathered his disciples to them or he began to teach them something. And then he teaches them. He comes to the end of that block and it'll say something like, and when Jesus finished, he moved on. So it's kind of like a, a block. You got five of those. You got one in Matthew 10, 1. Uh, at the end of that, Matthew 11, 1, it says, after Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples. You've got one in Matthew 13. At the end of that one, in Matthew 13, 53, when Jesus had finished these parables. In Matthew 18, in the first verse of Matthew 19, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the fifth one is in Matthew 24 through 20, first verse of chapter 26, which says when Jesus had finished saying all these things. And so you look at the way Matthew arranged his gospel story. You've got these five blocks of teaching that are bookended by an introductory statement and then a statement at the end that says, okay, when Jesus had finished these sayings and then he moved on. Now, here's why I want you to notice that. You've got here a similar statement at the beginning in Matthew 28, 16 and 17. And in verse 18, Jesus came and said to them. So you've got Jesus gathering his disciples for a sixth time as far as Matthew's gospel is concerned. Every one of them had some sort of introductory statement like this where the disciples came to him and Jesus came and said to them some sort of introductory formula that basically says, I'm about to teach you something you need to remember. In every one of the previous five times, you've got a conclusion to that block of teaching that indicates, okay, now we're moving to the next phase. Now, you probably know where I'm going with this. Where do you find the concluding statement in this sixth block of teaching? That's a bit of a trick question. It's not there. Now, I think Matthew knew exactly what he was doing with this. What's he doing here? He is saying, all right, we've got these blocks of Jesus' teaching. They have a definite conclusion, and then he moves on. But here, Jesus calls his disciples to him. He gives a short block of teaching. He commissions them, and then what does Matthew do? He just stops. 
What's the implication of that? I think the implication is very similar to what you read at the end of the book of Acts. When you're just reading along, Paul's in prison, he's been there for two years, and it just ends. That's why you've got today, you've got some, some ministries out in the religious world called Acts 29. Acts only has 28 chapters. And I was thinking it might be pretty cool if we try to become a Matthew 29 kind of church. Because I think what Matthew is doing here is, he is saying, here's the commission. Here's the commission. Now, Matthew 29 is what? It's what we do. We ought to be a Matthew 29 church. We ought to be continuing the implications of what he says in this block of teaching. Now look at this. Look how he ends this. Verse 20. Behold, I'm with you always, all the days, the whole of the days, literally is what that says. Uh, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. This is a Jewish idiom, by the way, of saying, I'll be with you forever. I'll be with you forever. That's what it means. I'll be with you every day until the end of time. I'll be with you all the days, the whole of the days. There won't be a part of the day when I'm not there with you. Middle of the night, and I'll be there with you. When it gets tough, I'll be there with you. When people are making fun of you, yeah, I'll be there. When people are hurting you, I'll be there then too. I'll be there with you the whole of the days until the end of time. Now, let me wrap this up. But I want us to understand and, and, and just close with this kind of... Uh, what, what I think Jesus is saying is pretty emphatic. Um, it's for you and me to understand. These words are given to us. They're given to us given to the apostles, but teach them all things that I've commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always to the end of the age, right? Teach them all things that I've commanded you, and, and every generation teaches all things that they've been commanded, and all that generation teaches and teaches and teaches, and so the links of the change go unbroken to our day and time, and they extend beyond uh, somebody in your life has loved you enough to share the gospel with you. So often we don't. We struggle with this. We struggle with it. You know, I was thinking about this this last week, studying this. We go on short-term mission trips. There's, there's some reason, and we've wrestled with this publicly before a little bit. There's, there's some reason why when we go to a, to a culture outside of our own country, that it's easier to share the gospel. It's easier. And I don't know what it is. It probably has something to do with the fact that we are <clears throat> strangers and we believe, we're treated as if, I don't think we believe it, but I think we're treated as if we're, I don't know, somehow more important or put on a pedestal, you know? And so when you're on kind of a pedestal and people put you on a pedestal because of where you're from, you're, you're, you have an attitude sometimes of, well, you know, I can teach you. You, you can't hurt me because, because I'm up here. You know, there's maybe that kind of thing. I don't know exactly what it is psychologically, but, but it's something. But then there's a tendency when we're among peers. I'm not, again, I'm not suggesting we're any better than anybody else. I'm just suggesting the way, that, the way that we perceive it. When we're among equals, when we're among peers, people of our own country, people who are like us, look like us, dress like us, talk like us, people we work with, go to school with, interact with, and are cul-de-sac. We don't. Why is that? I suppose it's because of social pressure many times, a fear of embarrassment, a fear of, oh, he's a weirdo. 
I mean, it's fine to be a Christian in America, right? As long as you don't become weird about it. Exactly, right? But Jesus, I think that's why he closes with this statement right here. I hadn't thought about this. I've te- taught this text um, several times over the years. But I don't know if I've ever connected this here. You got there doubting first part of this text, maybe hesitant, uncertain, what, what in the world's going to happen now? And then you got Jesus saying, I've got all, all authority, here's what you need to do. And then, it's, then he says this, I'll be with you. I'll be with you until the end of time. So when you and I are afraid, when we are embarrassed, when we are uncertain, when we are doubting, whatever the emotion is, whatever it is, I think we come back to verse 20. And we've got to put our confidence and our hope in what Jesus says, that all authority is in Him. He's told us to do this. And there ought not to be any kind of fear as long as we recognize that when we have the conversation with that person we know we ought to talk to, that Jesus is standing right beside us. And if they reject the message, they haven't rejected us. They've rejected Jesus Christ, the one who stands with us. I will be with you the whole of every day to the end of time. But I think there is a contingency there. As long as, this is the way the Bible often works, as long as you're doing what I'm telling you to do. If you abandon the commission, then there is some sense in which we turn our backs on the continual presence of Jesus Christ with us. I think the strong, this, this, this passage is incredibly strong. If you're not a Christian today, if you're not a Christian, we've been talking, I know I've been talking to, talking to the church because Jesus here is talking to, you know, he's talking to his disciples. But if you're not a Christian here, one of the things that we want to talk to you about is, we want to talk to you about what we've been talking about today. We want to talk to you about becoming a disciple of Jesus. We want to talk to you about trusting in Him, about believing that He is the Son of God, that He died on the cross for you, that He was resurrected the third day. We want you not only to believe that intellectually, but we want you to believe it emotionally. We want you to believe it spiritually. And we want you to believe it with your life. We want you to come and be baptized into Jesus for the forgiveness of all of our sins. And then you can continue on that journey as we teach you what it means to be a disciple as you grow in your relationship to Jesus Christ, we invite you today to come to Him. And we would be thrilled for you to do so. If you've got questions, if you've got doubts, if you've got, I don't know, what, whatever it is, let, let one of us know. We would be thrilled to talk to you about what Jesus has taught us in His Word. If you're a, a child of God, a member of this congregation, but you have not lived as one ought to, then we want to make sure that you have the opportunity to make whatever changes. Let's get our hearts and minds focused on doing the things that he's commissioned us to do as we go about our lives. Let's stand. Let's sing this song.